Let's look at the baptism and the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ, kind of the threshold of the ministry proper this morning. And to get us started, let's look at Matthew 3.13-17. through 17. When Jesus arrived from Galilee, he was a tecton in Nazareth of Galilee, uh, at the Jordan River, not very far from Jerusalem, east of Jerusalem, coming to John, we call him John the Baptist, even though he wasn't a Baptist, to be baptized by him. Jesus wants to be baptized by John the Baptist. But John tried to prevent him, Jesus saying, I have need to be baptized by you. I'm just a prophet. You're the Messiah. I'm just a man. You're the God-man. And you come to me, be baptized by me? But Jesus answered, said, permit it at this time. This is the exact right time for me to identify with your ministry, which was predicted in the Old Testament before I begin my ministry, which was predicted all over the Old Testament. For in this way, it is fitting for us together to fulfill all righteousness. John the Baptist, as it were, is passing the baton to the Messiah, Jesus. Then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Behold, the heavens were open. God is miraculously manifesting himself to the open heavens. That's a figure for that. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is God the Father speaking, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So we're working through the overall life of Christ using the English alphabet as a guide. And we come to letters D and E this morning. Dove descends at the Duncan water baptism. Uh, and then enemy entices extraordinarily. We keep the, I'm a speech teacher part time, so I like that alliteration going. So we're going to connect D and E, and a lot, I think a lot of people don't do that. I, I think those two events fit together like fraternal twins angel because they really are the doorway, the threshold through the ministry proper. So we're going to try to show you how those two fit together. I think it's a helpful study. But uh, let's pray for our teachability to God's word today. It's a spiritual thing we're doing here, not just an intellectual or cognitive thing. Uh, those who worship, talking about worship, Jesus says those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. Where are you going to find the truth? Uh, indirectly in the hymn book, but uh, directly from uh, scripture, right? Uh, and also let's pray for our troops and our, fire, our firefighters and peace officers. There's some peace officers uh, we were down in that part of the world um, two years ago, uh, driving from Groves, Texas, to the Panhandle of Florida, right through Baton Rouge. And it's funny because you know they have all these uh, orange barrels all over the place on the interstates. It seems like you go anywhere, you gotta uh, you know deal with that. And uh, I was watching CNN, which I don't watch CNN that much. I and I confess my sins if I do, but. Uh, um, but uh, that's a joke. I've watched it twice in the last five years. But anyway, uh, one CNN, and they were they were anticipating riots, uh, and we're going to drive right through Baton Rouge the next morning. <laughs> so uh, as we approached Baton Rouge, I'm I didn't really tell everybody how nervous I was, but I didn't want to stop for gas in Baton Rouge necessarily. So uh, and this, we had a caravan. My uh, sister-in-law was behind us, and the other sister-in-law was behind us. We've got these three cars going. And as we approach Baton Rouge, the traffic stops on the interstate. And I think, oh, my goodness, you know. And it was just a routine work zone. One of those work zones where you can't, once you get to the work zone, nobody's working. 
but uh, but I, I look at those guys. I know that's that's a couple of years ago, but uh, just because we were so close to that whole situation, I those, I look at those guys all the time, and I I think of their families. Their families have to deal with that. They're they're uh, premature. And I believe in the sovereignty of God and 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 God's in control of the timing of all our passings, but. From a human perspective, uh, that was an evil, horrible thing. And you look at the guy on the left. I've, I've read a lot about Montrell. He was just kind of uh, the uh, mascot of the Baton Rouge Police Department. He loved everybody, rich, poor, black, white. He didn't care. And uh, it's just uh, it's hard to think about. So let's pray for their families and our firefighters. And, you know, it's easy to sometimes get excited and impressed by people far away from Duncan. But we've got... Uh, I interacted with three Duncan policemen Friday. We had a, an incident that could have been dangerous for your pastor. And uh, we had, uh, uh, I hate to mention this now because I was going to want to, you're not going to listen to the temptation, are you? You're going to, and I'll tell you about it sometime, but I don't want to dramatize it too much. But it just so happened that one, two, three policemen showed up and it, I was very happy to see them uh, uh, on Friday. So, uh uh, those those guys and gals, both fire and uh, police, uh, put on the line for us, and so I appreciate that. So, Eric, uh, pray for our teachability. Pray for those who protect and serve us, okay? We like to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking, and nothing does that better than really corny knock-knock jokes. So we've got a corny knock-knock joke alert. Now, we've done this before, maybe once. This may be my last Sunday as pastor here after we do it again, but... Uh, I'm going to say knock-knock, and then I'd like you, uh, in a corny way, to say who's there in unison, okay? We could practice that, but no, I think you can do it. Knock-knock. Who's there? Cash. Cashew. No, thanks. I prefer peanuts. Cashew. I'll, I'll explain them to you. Knock-knock. Who's there? Honeybee. Honeybee. Honeybee a deer and open the door, please. You can use these on the kids. They'll love them, you know? Cooper would love these. Knock, knock. Honeydew. Honey, do you think we need better jokes next Sunday? Uh, preview of coming attractions. Not this, not this Wednesday. We'll have a fellowship dinner, Lord willing. And then we'll finish our study of Philemon. But a week from this Wednesday, we're going to begin a uh, six or seven week study on Islam based on the book in the DVD series by the author, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And I think you'll find it uh, very interesting uh, to make sure we, we cover the content rather than praying at 7.05 to 7.35 and then Bible teaching until 8.05-ish. Uh, we're going to start the video of the DVD at 7.05 straight up. So if you got to come late, that's cool. I'd rather you come late than not at all. But uh, we're going to start right on time so we can get through that content. It's very good. Uh, I could teach a lot of that uh, because he doesn't say that much that's that different except it's through his perspective. But I, I think it's going to be good for you to hear what someone who was a devout Muslim says about Islam. And one thing he says is you don't have to be afraid of all of them. It's a small percentage that are violent fundamentalists. But it's a large raw number. There's 1.6 billion people who embrace Islam in this, in this world that are called Muslims. Uh, only about 5% are violent fundamentalists, but that's a big raw number, and we do have an issue. So it doesn't hurt to refer to violent fundamentalist Muslims any more than it, refer, it hurts to refer to violent fundamentalist 
white identity, quote-unquote, Christians or Ku Klux Klan Christians who claim to be Christians, who I don't think are regenerate Christians probably. But that doesn't offend me for you to isolate them from me. It scares me when you consider me one of them because I'm not. So, But that's my opinion on that. So anyway, so that's coming up. So put that on your calendar. And also, yeah, we've got 25 uh, seats reserved. We've got 16 spoken for, so there's still time for you to get in there. And really, even if after today you change your mind, last minute can go, we'll probably have a couple of seats, but I can't promise that. But uh, I'm not selling stuff for the Dodgers, but you get a, a nice seat, all you can eat before the game, a ball cap, and uh, something else. A bumper sticker? Nice. I think that's what it is. But anyway, talk to me today, because technically I need to let them know how many are coming tomorrow. Okay. Looking at the life of Christ, A through Z, one Savior, four Gospels, 26 events, Right. We're going to look at D and E. We saw A, angels announced the supernormal pregnancy of John the Baptist. His parents were too old to have children, but God opened her womb, and it happened, John the Baptist. And the supernatural, class A miracle, virgin conception, virgin birth of Jesus Christ uh, in that A section. B, birth in Bethlehem. What does Bethlehem stand for? House of bread, right? Bread of life is born in the house of bread. That fulfilled... Literally, a prophecy made 700 years B.C. that the Messiah would be born in the city of David, Bethlehem, in Judea. Last week, we looked at carpentry career. He was a tecton, remember? A skilled worker in wood and or stone. We showed you um, Nicole after the in second hour said, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced Jesus laid that mosaic floor of the Mona Lisa of Galilee, and he may have, but I can't promise it. Now, when we go to Israel next May... We're going to see what's called the Jesus Boat back in 1986 when there was a drought uh, as the waters of the Sea of Galilee receded. The edges of a boat, which turned out to be a first century carbon dated, first century fishing boat, like the ones Peter, James, and John would have operated, like the ones Jesus would have sailed across the lake in, uh, was discovered. And we'll, uh, in 06 when we were there, uh, our Israeli guide knew one of the two brothers that originally found the boat. And he said, hey, uh, he said, this guy's usually right around this area. I'm going to, he asked me, hey, it's okay if I call him and see if he can come and talk to the group. I said, nah, I don't want to talk to him. I said, yeah, please call him. This, one of the two guys that found the boat actually showed up at this museum we went to and talked to our group. And I can't promise you we'll do that again, but I'll do my best. We also saw Dan Aykroyd at Masada last time we were there. And this year, I want to see like Amy Grant or something. But what, you never know what you're going to see. But yeah, uh, we talked about the fact that Jesus worked with his hands from age 12 to about 30, six times longer than his quote-unquote preaching ministry. And uh, David, you and I wouldn't have organized it like that. But man, God knows what he's doing. You trust it. Now today, we're going to look at the threshold of the very beginning, the overture to the ministry of Christ in D and E, Dove Descends, Enemy Entices, and, you know, one key verse or a cluster of verses that really are overarching for this whole series, go back to John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. What the Greek text really says there, in the beginning the Word already was, as that's the title for Jesus here. Jesus was before the beginning. He was before time, space, matter, and energy. He's transcendent as the second person of the ontological trinity. In the beginning the Word, Jesus already was because he's the second person of Trinity, and the Word was with God, had fellowship with God the Father and the Spirit, his separate person from them. 
And yet he's God himself. He's full deity, right? He's not subordinate to the Father or the Spirit. So we've got Jesus was before the beginning. He was with God and a distinct person from God, the Holy Spirit. But he himself was full deity. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us through the virgin conception, virgin birth. And John then goes on and says, we beheld his glory Glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So let's look at D. Dove descends at the Duncan. Look at verses 13 through 15. Jesus comes to John, the messianic forerunner, predicted by Isaiah and Malachi, to publicly identify with his ministry. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee. He's been working as a tecton for 18 years in the city of Nazareth, in the state, in the region of Galilee, at the Jordan River, not the country of Jordan, uh, east of Jerusalem coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, hey, I'm just the helper. You're the chief. I'm just the man. You're the God-man. I'm just a prophet. You're the Messiah, priest, and king. But Jesus said, hey, this is the right thing to do. I want to identify with your ministry. I want you, as it were, hand the baton to me, permitted at this time, for in this way it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And he permitted him. Now, let me start with a warning. And I, and I do this tongue-in-cheek, Ben, when I say John the Baptist wasn't a Baptist but there actually is a tract that goes around that says why everyone should be a Baptist. And the whole uh, premise of the tract is John the Baptist <laughs> was a Baptist. So you shouldn't be, a, if you're a Christian believer, you shouldn't be a Methodist or Presbyterian or Assembly of God or Church of Nazarene or Independent uh, Bible Church. You need to be a Baptist because John the Baptist was a Baptist. That's the whole premise of the tract. So some people read that and think that's what it means, and it's not. And I say here, warning, all your Bibles should have a warning label uh, by the uh, uh, authority of Dallas Theological Seminary or somebody, uh, regarding or reading 21st century meanings, Amanda, into your first century New Testament can be dangerous to your spiritual health. And I'll give you some examples. You read about uh, Paul goes to Asia during his missionary journeys, Okay. Now, you know what Asia is. Ben's a smart guy. He's, he's the president of a, of a bank. You know, you gotta be really smart to do that. Good with numbers, right? Um, where's Asia, Ben? It's right there, right? We know what Asia is. So, wow, that, that documentary I saw on Easter week on the Discovery Channel, Sydney, about Jesus going to the Himalayas and becoming a Buddhist, you know, must be real because Paul went to Asia, right? No. Uh, Scott, you know this better than I do. Asia, in the New Testament, was a small province in what we call Turkey today, in Asia Minor. That's the Asia we're talking about. And Paul spent three whole years in Ephesus during the third missionary journey in Asia. That was the Roman province. So let's go back to the modern continents, the way we describe uh, them, the labels. Let me show you where New Testament Asia is on this map. You looking? Right there. You see it? It's right there. That little. That's what it's talking about. You must interpret the Bible in the context in which it was written, right? Let me give you another example. Uh, that's a church, right? So when we talk about Paul's writing to the church in Colossae, he's obviously writing to a, a building with a steeple on it or a building like this one um, that has a cross in it, right? Uh, the word church in the New Testament is the word ecclesia, and it means a group of people, a called-out group of people. And that word in the New Testament, never refers to any buildings. That doesn't mean that church buildings are evil or terrible. 
It never refers to denominations. That doesn't mean they're evil or terrible. They're kind of essential because we have enough distinctions on minor things. We're going to break out like that, and people tend to clump. That's just the way we're kind of designed. But the church, the ecclesia in the New Testament, never refers to buildings. It always refers to believers, Jenny. Okay, When you see the word church in your New Testament, you're talking about believers either as the capital C church, all believers, born-again believers in Jesus Christ, every color, country, and culture from the day of Pentecost until the rapture. That's the body of Christ. That's the bride of Christ. That's the New Testament a universal church. I call it the capital C church. Okay, That uh, is one of the meanings for the term, depending on context. The other meaning is what I call the lowercase c church, individual local church, Uh uh, Bethel Assembly of God, First Methodist Church, First Baptist Church, Tanglewood Bible Fellowship Church. So you can't apply that meaning, a building. And I tell Debbie, you know, every morning, uh, uh, she, she usually trying to be funny because we're almost, where else am I going to go most days? Where are you going? I always say I'm going back to the church house, you know, meaning the church, the building. So we use the term that way. It's not evil to use the term that way, but it's wrong to import that into your Bible reading, right? Now, John the Baptist, <laughs> okay, he wasn't a Baptist, okay, he wasn't a Baptist in the sense of Southern Baptist or Northern Baptist or uh, his denomination. In fact, the Greek text has John the baptizing one. It's just an articular present active participle, which is a nomic, a generic label for someone, right? So he's really John, the Jewish prophet, who very uniquely was baptizing Jews to acknowledge their sin, their need for a Savior, and their belief that the Savior was on the ground right then. That's what his job was, as prophesied in Isaiah 40, verse 30, in about 700 B.C., and also prophesied by Malachi in about 430 B.C. in Malachi 3.1. So the point is, John, who's mentioned here in verse 13, often called John the Baptist, wasn't a Baptist, he was the first Jewish prophet in 450 years. You realize that the last writing prophet in the Old Testament was Malachi, and he finishes his work in 430 with a prophecy about John the Baptist. And then you have this unusual silent period in Jewish history where God's still working uh, providentially. You think about uh, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes attacking and desecrating the temple and and uh, Judas Maccabee fighting him off and that kind of stuff. So God's still at work, but it's kind of like history's in a holding pattern. And then suddenly, here comes John the baptizing Jewish prophet announcing the advent of the Messiah. He's on the ground. That would it should have been huge to anybody who was biblically informed. And a lot of regular people were, but the Jewish bureaucrats pretty much weren't. So that's really important. Okay, Look at verse 13 again. So Jesus arrives... Uh, from Galilee after 18 years as an adult, from 12 to 30, working as a tecton, to be baptized, to be identified with this prophet who Isaiah and Malachi said would be on the ground telling the Jews the Messiah was here, get ready for him. Now the way, by the way, the word baptizo, which is the Greek word for baptism, means to, it just means in the lexicon, the dictionary, to immerse or to identify with. And that second second meaning, David, identify with, goes back to the fact that they would, uh, it, was, it was really used for taking pieces of cloth 
and immersing them in dye, so you had kind of whatever the, the, the color of the cloth was, you immerse it in, say, purple dye if you're doing something for royalty, and then that cloth identifies with that color. So the word means to immerse or to identify with. And so Jesus is coming to be water baptized, immersed in the Jordan River, but so he can identify with the message of John the Baptist. And what was John the Baptist's message? I'm on the ground after 430 years plus, 50 years of no prophet, and the Messiah is on the ground, get ready. Okay? And Jesus says, I want to identify with that. You know, I want you to identify with me publicly. So that's the purpose. It's kind of a, a pointer so there'd be no confusion about what's going on here. Now last week we saw Jesus in Nazareth and he, as I said, spent 18 years roughly working with his hands, laying mosaic floors and building things out of stone and wood. Prior to that, in uh, A and B, angels announced birth in Bethlehem, we're in Bethlehem. Now we're here. Jesus has come from the northern region to the southern region, uh, from inland to the Jordan River Valley. Now, as I've said, when we go to Israel, uh, on our way out of Galilee down toward Jerusalem, we're going to stop at a tourist site where you can buy books and souvenirs and be baptized where Jesus was baptized because according to the Israeli government, and because it's convenient for them, that's where Jesus was baptized. He wasn't. He was baptized there. Okay. Now, the problem is that location on the Israeli side is very difficult to get to. But So the Jordanians have built a tourist site there, and that's the actual place. But uh, just so you'll know, right? Well, let's keep going. Verse 14. John tried to prevent him saying, for reasons we've already explained, you ought to be baptizing me. What's going on here? But Jesus said, let's just do this thing. I want to publicly identify with you. You publicly identify with me. And more importantly, the other two members of the Trinity are going to identify with me in front of you, right? After being baptized, it goes on. But uh, one more thing. Jesus insists that John baptize him not for the reason John was baptizing folks who needed to repent of their sin and put faith in the promised Messiah who was on the ground, but for a particular reason to identify with his uh, messianic ministry. Okay, Now look at verses 16 17. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open. That means God is going to speak in a non-deniable, spectacular fashion. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove. That's the Holy Spirit. And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, Sydney, I already talked about the fact that you know, the fact that Paul went to Asia, which means somewhere in India, right? We know that, right? Leads some people to say, well, golly, we've got all these, sure, we've got all those silent years where Jesus goes from age 12, the last time we see him in Luke going to the temple for Passover with his parents, to about 30 when he begins his ministry. I wonder what he did during those 18 years. What does the text say? He worked as a tecton. He worked with his hands, right? That's what the text says. But since there's no explicit content, people... You like to write books, or like to write, you have, you know, when you get a PhD, you have to make an independent contribution to your field. So you have to say something nobody else has said, even if it's not right. <laughs> I mean, it's weird, you know, so don't, don't trust all the, you can trust my PhD dissertation, trust me, because the macro literary structure of the book of Revelation is exactly the way I describe it in 300 pages. If you'd like to read that, or if you need a sleep aid, that would help you. But, uh, yeah, so there's a lot of room for coming up with these crazy theories. But whatever the Lord Jesus did, and I'm telling you, he worked with his hands for 18 years, what exactly does verse 17 do for you? 
We know whatever he did, he was sinless and perfect how he did it, because the voice of the God Father says, this is my son, I'm well pleased, he's good to go, he qualifies as the Messiah, because he's the sinless Lamb of God. That's what that means, and that's big, right? So immediately after the baptism, both God the Father and God the Holy Spirit confirm his person and his virtue, and he's fully qualified to be your savior. You know, if God, if Jesus was a sinner and was a debtor to God, look, if I'm a debtor, I may want to, if you're a million in, in debt and I'm 500,000 in debt, I'm better off than you are, right, Eric? But even though I love you as my brother and I'd like to try to help you pay your debt, if I'm 500,000 in debt, I can't pay his million dollar debt, can I? A debtor can't pay somebody else's debt. We're daring to believe, Julie actually believes Jesus died for her sin debt. But if he owes God a sin debt, he's not able to do that. So it's very important we recognize this perfect sinlessness of Jesus, right? And God the Father flat declares Jesus is his son, not his little boy, but the second member of the Trinity, and was perfectly righteous in every way, even though we don't know all the details of his working life as a tecton. We just know he worked every day, six days a week as a tecton, right? So again... This is my beloved son doesn't mean he's God's little boy. The Mormons read that and think physically Elohim. The Mormons believe Elohim, that's their name for the God of this planet. God in Mormonism is the God of this planet. There are lots of gods just like him all over the universe. And as man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. Okay, it's a free country. I believe in the First Amendment. They can believe that. Don't tell me you're another version of Christianity. You're not. Methodism, as opposed to Presbyterianism, historically have a lot of differences, but they're talking about the same Jesus. Mormonism is talking about a whole different situation, you know, right? But when we talk about him as the son, we're not talking about him as God's little boy, but especially thinking about his role as the sendee, as the subordinate, taking a subordinate role in the overall plan of salvation. But it doesn't denigrate his person or say he's less than God. In the beginning, the word was with God and the word was full deity. So at the baptism of Jesus, we're calling this dove descends in this A through Z system, Matthew 3, the righteousness of Christ was proclaimed. And I kicked myself like last night when I reviewed that one more time and said, I'm a speech teacher. I've got to use alliteration. There's, It's like the... Eleventh commandment, thou shalt use alliteration. How can I say at the baptism the righteousness of Christ was proclaimed, which it was, and then say through the temptations the righteousness of Christ is demonstrated? I've got to get them both with the same letter. So let's change this. If you've got a, if you've got a pen or pencil, change it on your handout. I want you to get this thing right. At his baptism, the perfect righteousness of Christ was declared by God the Father. You're going to get a better source than that? County, where are you going to get a better source than that? You can't. This is it, you know. Don't be afraid that he went to uh, India and became a Buddhist. It didn't happen, right? Uh, and then let's go to uh, Matthew 4. At his uh, temptation, the enemy, uh, the, I mean, I should say the, uh, the righteousness of Christ is demonstrated. So it's declared, and now it's demonstrated. So let's go from uh, D to E, from... Uh, the Jordan River Valley to the wilderness of Judea, just north uh, uh, of Jerusalem there. And look at verses 1 and 2, the setting for this. Then, right after he's baptized by John the Baptist, he doesn't smooth with John the Baptist for a couple of weeks. 
We're going to see him next week interacting with John the Baptist after the baptism and the temptation, but or temptations. But immediately after he's baptized, after he dried off, of course, right? And by the way, you know, uh, principals and pastors, anytime the school or the church is going to get a lot of people wet, that's the 12th commandment. Principals and pastors have to get wet, totally wet. So I'm going to change, I'm going to dress out right after, just like high school. I'm going to dress out right after this is over, and me and Mike are going to go do the ultimate. Greater love have no pastor, and he gets soaking wet for his church. And I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big target compared to your average four years old. So I, I know that, uh, I know that uh, Peyton and Sadie and, uh, you know, uh, some of the kids will enjoy that, uh, getting me all wet. And uh, But I'm a big target. I'm slow. I'm a lot slower than I used to be. So, I, you know, I've got no chance out there. But uh, I'm praying for no clouds. I want it to be really hot today, right now. I mean, it was so hot yesterday. I said, please let it be hot. So anyway, here's the setting. Look at one and two. Jesus was led by the Spirit. Uh, Satan may try to entice you to evil. Your sin nature may try to rationalize and, re- and redefine evil. God permits it so you can demonstrate you won't sin. See, Christians are able to sin. God doesn't do a sin natureectomy on you when you trust Jesus Christ, when he regenerates you. But we're also able, moment by moment, not to. And that's the purpose of the test. Uh, you know, I went through uh, biology. I got a biology degree. I went to dental school. Um, and then, uh, which is a long way to seminary, I ended up at Dallas Seminary, which is four years of graduate Greek and Hebrew, and it's an academic meat grinder, some people call it. I loved it, of course, but I then did a PhD program later, but I always felt like, uh, Trinity Seminary, but I always felt like, uh, looking back on all that, especially after Dallas Seminary, uh, at my undergrad getting a biology degree in dental school, it's almost like the testing was try to find something you don't know. They assume uh, we know most of what they taught. Let's find something in a footnote somewhere that they might miss. It's like the testing was, let's try to trick them. You go to Dallas Seminary, what's going like? They're just asking us what we should know after listening and interacting with the data. So it's like, a, it's a totally different mindset. And the way God views permitting temptation, um, he's not trying to trick us up or solicit us to sin, but he's giving us a chance to show we won't. And this is, I think this is important. Before Jesus begins his ministry as the sinless son of God, he's going to be the lamb of God, I mean the king of the universe, uh, visibly, undeniably. He's got to demonstrate his perfection against the ultimate spiritual evil, which is Satan himself. So uh, the spirit leads him there, not so he might slip up, but so that to prove that he won't, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. Uh it is funny, I'm 65 years old, I can't remember where my car keys are half the time, but I can remember some of these things that happened 50 years ago. I remember, uh, as a Southern Baptist boy, one of the coolest thing about being an elementary school, uh, Southern Baptist boy in my day was, was vacation Bible school. And, and we kind of do vacation Bible school on Sundays with the Super Summer Program. Thank you, Lord, for Krista, for making that happen every year. But uh, in my day, this was during the day. The parents, the dads didn't want to go. Now the dads have to go. So they also have to watch the babies get born. I mean, you know, they won World War II, but they weren't willing to see their, their wives give birth, nor were they willing to go to vacation Bible school. You know, they, you had to do it during the day, so dad didn't have to go. My dad wouldn't have gone anyway. But I remember I, we had so much fun, man, at vacation Bible school. But I remember I just watched this movie on television about Daniel Boone. And Daniel Boone kind of lived in the Kentucky wilderness. Wilderness, that was the term. Now, it looked to me like the woods, but they call it the wilderness, wilderness. And I'll never forget, I'm in vacation Bible school. 
probably third grade, and they're talking about the Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness. And somebody said, one of the teachers said, okay, children, do, do you know what the wilderness is? I just saw Daniel Boone. He's in the wilderness. They kept using that term. I, I said, I'm going I'm to amaze everybody. I know this answer. Yeah. What is it? It's the woods. And went, no, you're wrong. You're, you know, and it, it was just so embarrassing. But anyway, and again, see, I didn't have a pastor who'd shown me John the Baptist didn't mean Baptist, Asia didn't mean Asia. I, I just assumed whatever is wilderness for Daniel Boone must be for the Bible, you know? But, uh, yeah, he's in the desert. And it's interesting. You think theologians and Paul, in fact, in Corinthians talks about, uh, the last Adam, Jesus in contrast to the first Adam. The first Adam is in the Garden of Eden. Everything's beautiful, colorful, flavorful. Everything's exactly what you want. There's one test there just so you can show you're going to, you know, go with the program. But anything, of all the trees of the garden, you may freely eat. You know, there's no menu. You decide what you want to eat every day, Adam and Eve. And they blow it there. But we've got the last Adam in the polar opposite situation, in the bleakness of this wilderness, doesn't eat for 40 days, 40 nights. And uh, uh, he became hungry, uh, really hungry, right? Let's look at the first temptation. Verses 3 through 4. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, and that's first class condition in the Greek, which means since you are the Son of God. He's not denying that. Satan knows who Jesus is, right? Since you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Uh, and you might say, well, you know, I can honestly say, I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a sinful person. I can be tempted in all kinds of different ways, just like you can be. But I've never once, in my, I hate to brag, but I, Ben, you won't believe this. I've never once in my whole life been tempted to turn stones into bread. Never had a problem with that. I'm, I'm really strong in that area, okay? Say, that's something he could have done, something we can't do. But uh, we have the opportunity to do stuff that would normally be legit, but if we do them in the wrong way, the wrong time, uh, it can be wrong. And so uh, the temper says, just, hey, you've fasted for 40 days, just use your magical powers, uh, your supernatural powers to meet your physical need here. Make it easy. Uh, and Jesus said, it is written, and he's quoting from Deuteronomy 6.16, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Uh, I think the temptation here, again, is something we would not be tempted to do because we don't have that kind of power. But Jesus had that kind of power. Is a call for Jesus to choose an illegitimate uh, way to meet a legitimate need, his physical need. Uh, I don't think that, in fact, look at Philippians uh, 2 real quick. Jesus doesn't give up his attributes of deity to become the God-man, but he gives up the independent use of those attributes, including veiling his glory, so he can experience the full bore of the human condition. He's not using his supernatural powers to make it easier for him to live life as a human being in that form, right? Uh, Philippians 2 verse 5, have this attitude in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, the morphe of God, that means the outward form with his glory forever from before creation, did not regard that kind of expressive equality of God to be grasped, but he emptied himself, not of his divine attributes, but of the independent use of his divine attributes and the outward display of his deity. So he just looked like a regular person. He didn't have a halo or anything. And those paintings are wrong. He didn't have a halo. He didn't look like anybody but just a 
Galilean tecton. But he emptied himself, not of his deity, but of the outward display of his deity and independent use of his attributes, taking on the outward form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself further, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, and so on. Let's go back to Matthew. So I think that's important. And the point you want to notice is the temptation is for him to selfishly use his divine powers for his personal comfort, and that would be wrong for him, and he was not going to do that. Second temptation, look at verses 5 through 7. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, since you are the son of God. Again, that's the premise um, of the question, not if. They both know who each other are, right? Throw yourself down because you know God's going to have to save you. This will be a great way for you to begin your public ministry. Just throw yourself down. There'll be Angels will appear, float you down, and you can start your ministry with a big publicity tour and a big grandiose miracle showing everybody who you are. If you're a son of God, since you're a son of God, throw yourself down for, and now he quotes scripture, Psalm 91. He'll, that is God the Father, will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they'll bear you up so that you may not strike your foot against a stone and suffer any harm that he didn't want you to suffer. Uh, there have been several times when I've talked about Mormon theology or Jehovah's Witness theology, which is aberrant heretical, right? It, well, they just miss, they miss who God is. They miss who Jesus is. They miss what sin is. They miss what Jesus did on the cross. And they miss salvation by grace through faith. Other than that, you know, it's not that bad. But I, almost uh, several different times in my 30 years here, you talk about that uh, Wednesday night or Sunday morning, and then the next time the Mormons come to somebody's house or the Jehovah's Witnesses come to somebody's house, they'll say, Pastor Brad, you said the Mormons were, were, were wrong, but they had, they had a Bible. They had a Bible with them. And they quoted a verse from the Bible. And I always think of this passage. Satan tells him to do the wrong thing the wrong way, and he quotes... From the Bible, just because somebody quotes from the Bible, beware of businessmen or politicians that quote the Bible. I mean, th- that's not always a, 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 a red flag, but quite often it is. Am I, can you relate to that? It, it does happen. So he's quoting the scripture out of context, which is why we do it in context, to help you know it context. And Jesus is not fooled. On the other hand, what you're implying I should do must be wrong because the clear teaching of Deuteronomy 6.16 says you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, right? Uh, we've got the temptation being, I want you to get your ministry off to a rousing start by promoting it illegitimately, by forcing God to save you by, from reckless behavior, okay? Now, I, I know some people like to jump out of airplanes and stuff, but uh, all I can say is make sure you've got a perfectly good parachute. Test it. Number two, you know, Jesus said, lo, I am with you always. He didn't say up there jumping out of an airplane. So I know that doesn't mean that, but uh, yeah. But again, notice Jesus' response is immediate citation of Scripture in context indirectly applying it, right? Now, we're not that familiar with Deuteronomy. Maybe we should be, but he was, of course. Now, the third temptation, look at verses 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and there were several high peaks in the Judean wilderness there, um, where we are. We don't know which exactly which one it was, but it's one of those. Um, if I can find myself here again. Well, 
took him to the high mountain there, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He's got some kind of amplification there, kind of using some, some spiritual dynamics so he can see the whole thing. And he said to them, all these things I will give you. And he could have done that. Satan is the God, lowercase g, of this world, you know. It's pretty obvious nowadays, especially uh, mass media doesn't cause it as much as just you, you see it, and then it just kind of exempt, uh, uh, ramps it up even more. If you'll fall down and worship me. Now, is Jesus going to end up in the end of his ministry, at the end of his connection with Second Advent, having all the kingdoms of the world worship him? So that's a legitimate thing for him to have, but it's time and in, in place. I often tell young husbands, listen, it's not what they, it's not what she says, it's what she means. Okay? You know, you know that, right, David? Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, God's will and your wife's will is not just a, a what, it's a when and a how. Man, I wish Dustin could hear that. You tell him, okay, Angel? Uh, yeah, this would have been theoretically probably the most difficult one to overcome. Now, Jesus is going to hit them all out of the park, of course. But this is, this is really legit. I mean, Every eye will, you know, every eye will see, every knee will bow, that kind of thing. This is going to happen, but not this way. And what he's really asking him to do is the crown without the cross, isn't it? Just let's have a shortcut, you know, a uh, sinful shortcut to the kingdom. Uh, bow down, uh, I'll make, uh, you know, every, the whole world will worship you. And Jesus said, that's it, you're out of here, we're done. <laughs> For it's written, uh, Deuteronomy 6.13, you shall worship the Lord God and serve him only. I'm not going to worship you to get something from you temporarily that would be illegitimate and uh, would repudiate, repudiate everything I am. Then the devil left him. Behold, angels came to minister to him. Uh, this is a call for Christ to short-circuit the entire plan of God involving the Messiah, Lamb of God first, death for our sins, resurrection, second advent, uh, glorious return, then the kingdom, avoid the cross, and quick... Uh, Track it to the uh, to the, uh, the, uh, the crown, and again Jesus immediately just cites scripture. So you see this, and this is the big picture I want to leave with you today. The RX, the prescription for temptation, is immediate obedient application of relevant scripture. Okay, the first temptation is selfish use of his divine powers for personal comfort. Uh, I've often said uh, I've got a lot of failings in the ministry, but I've never used my I've never felt like I've used the pulpit to give Debbie a secret message or even give my boys a secret message when they were here. I sometimes talk to my boys. I Hopefully every Sunday I talk to my boys and talk to the youth group and everything like that. But I've never kind of, I've never, always felt that was sketchy to kind of either just talk about all of my wonderful athletic accomplishments or, uh, and there are so, there are so many, uh, uh, or academic accomplishments, or try to give a secret message. That kind of, this isn't this isn't my pulpit. This is just a place for me to teach the Bible. So I always felt like so. In a way, I've always kind of felt that 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 would be a temptation to do that. I don't want to do that. I can't change stones in the in the bread. He could have, but he wasn't going to use his divine attributes to lessen his experience of the human condition. And that's very important, I think, for a lot of reasons. The second temptation would have been an illegitimate promotion of his ministry by publicity stunt. It was reckless and foolhardy. And you can't presume. Uh, the, the old joke, uh, it's not a joke, but it's really kind of ironic. A uh, preacher was talking about the sovereignty of God and saying, hey, God has sovereignly decided exactly how long you're going to live, uh, which doesn't mean you shouldn't you know, take good care of yourself and do go to the doctor and stuff and, and, and that kind of thing. But uh, when the sermon was over, the guy comes up to the pastor and says, well, you mean if I cross Main Street at high noon in Dallas, Texas with a blindfold on, 
if it's not God's time for me to die, I wouldn't die. And the preacher said, you know what? If you cross Main Street at noon tomorrow with a blindfold on in Dallas, Texas, it is God's time for you to die. <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. And then the last one, bow down, I'll give you all the kings of the earth, which he's going to get anyway, the hard way, would have been a sinful shortcut to the kingdom, the cross, uh, the crown without the cross, and that's just not going to fly. So let me uh, conclude with two big lessons. Lesson one is an important question and answer, is how did our Lord Jesus defeat his temptations? This might be a good example for us to notice. Yeah, okay. By immediate citation followed by direct application of relevant scripture, you know? Uh, you can't, you don't necessarily have to, Ryrie, Dr. Ryrie, the guy that rewrote the Bible, you know, Ryrie Study Bible, he used to say, you don't have to meant, you don't have to remember Deuteronomy 6.16 necessarily, but you ought to know the chapters, and then you can always look around and find what you're thinking about. So one reason I think Bible exposition is important for Christians when they're under the Word is so they can read First Peter or Second Peter or the Gospels and kind of understand what they mean in context and realize Asia is not talking about China, you know, so that's not a problem, right? Uh, so you can actually Pull up, and I really think the Holy Spirit helps you remember stuff. I can't, of course, the longer you do it, the more you kind of have experience, but you talk to people with different issues, spiritual issues, and, you know, it's amazing sometimes, you know, you know you'll, you'll think of a passage you haven't thought about in five years, right, when you're looking at somebody who needs to hear something, and you can't even always, you might be a chapter off, uh, Psalm 96, oh, Psalm 95, they don't care, but you can kind of pull it up, I mean, I think we're given a grace apparatus for perception of Scripture if we're really teachable to it. And if you're not, it just bounces off your head instead of going into your heart. So I think that's, that's a big thing, to be able to cite scriptural principles and then don't redefine or rationalize your sinful, selfish, lazy kind of tendency. Just apply it and don't do stuff you have to lie about later, right? Now, why is this so important to establish both through the declaration and now the demonstration, the perfect righteousness of Christ before we talk about the ministry of Christ. This is happening because he can't be a sin debtor and be the savior of sinners, like we said earlier. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. The King James has it, the just for the unjust. That's the way I like it to translate that. To bring you to God, he's put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. He who knew no sin, who committed no sin, was made to be a sin offering for us. If he's a debtor, he can't pay our debt. And that brings us back to the gospel. And you you can go anywhere in the Bible, and you're not very far away from Jesus and the gospel, right? So the righteous Savior dies for the unrighteous. We talked about the doctrine of imputation last Wednesday night. Our sins were imputed to Christ and judged on the cross. And when we trust him, that payment comes to us, which makes our debt zero. And on top of that, his righteousness is imputed to us, and that's our standing Legally, on our first day, or on our worst day as a Christian, it's incredible. You couldn't make it up. But it's all about the sinless Savior dying for our sins so we don't have to die in our sins. And what does he say at the end of the crucifixion? It is finished. Three words in English, one word in Greek, tetelestai, meaning paid in full. The debt is paid in full because I paid it for you. Now, Jesus died for our sins, but he's not dead anymore. Just like the the resurrection of Christ is absolutely necessary for salvation, so is the perfect righteousness of Christ. If if he sinned, he's not qualified. If he's still dead, he can't get you folk on heaven. Since he is perfect and he was resurrected, get excited. And it's okay to, to actually take this stuff seriously, on, even on prom night. And I know the world doesn't think it, it's, it's rational or realistic to believe stuff like that, but it actually happened, and you believe it, 
Live like it. Go in peace. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for uh, the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, I thank you for your willingness to accept that subordinate role as a sendee, as the active agent of salvation and a refusal to take any cheap substitutes or any detours from the path that you committed to and it was absolutely necessary for our salvation. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, you'd help us as believers to realize we've got battles to fight, whether it's in a boardroom, in a, in a plush building, office building, or whether it's out in the oil field, or whether it's at uh, Duncan Middle School, or Cameron University, or Oklahoma State University. We've got battles to fight. We're going to face temptations. Uh, the evil one wants to mess us up, trip us up. You want us to be able to lean on you and demonstrate that uh, we can walk righteously through the things that you lead us into and through. And I pray that we'd realize this is a strategy we can use. Let's think of a relevant biblical principle and then just decide to obey it. Just rather than focusing on not doing this and then getting the forbidden fruit kind of dynamic going, focus on the positive, not the negative, and just walk with Jesus as we walk as he would walk. And I pray you didn't enable us to do that. Uh, I pray for anyone this morning, Father, who's not from the depth of their heart trusted Jesus Christ alone, the righteous, resurrected Savior, open their heart to see and believe and receive the gift of eternal life. And for those of us who are believers, uh, help us to uh, remind ourselves just how great He is and how great it is to be able to live for Him than this one lifetime you give us uh, in a way that would be uh, revealing whose we are, not concealing it. Uh, Father, I thank you for each one who's here. I pray that uh, you use this uh, content from your word to individually uh, meet needs, answer a question, and give guidance that each one of us need. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.